Today, we explore the important role of emotions in extraordinary states. Welcome to Exploring Possibilities, where we explore ways to raise our vibration and expand our experience of life. Mario Rosales and I really appreciate the time that you spend with us each show, and we hope that you benefit and expand from what we talk about here. If so, can you do me a favor and tell your friends about the show? We'd love to continue to grow our audience. We also appreciate your financial support at journeyofpossibilities.com slash support. While you're there, check out our full archive. We have over 270 conscious conversations on pretty much every topic you can imagine. (laughs) That's at journeyofpossibilities.com. And joining us in just a moment is Michael A. Jauer. Hi, I'm Mario Rosales. I am the producer of Exploring Possibilities. I actually do IT work. I do website design. I do uh, remote support. You know, one of the things that I've been having recently, I've been working with people that are on Wix. And... At the beginning, even I had the idea that Wix wasn't that powerful. But as I started working with it, I found out that there is so much more in there that we are not taking advantage of. We're not taking advantage of its database functionality. We're not taking advantage of their autoresponders. And a lot of this comes included for free in some of their packages. I've learned the system very well to the point that I can train you on how to do it. Or if you ask me to to do some complicated task, I can design it for you within Wix. Then after I'm done, I give you the training on how to use it. And then if you have any troubles, you can always call me. Thank you. I am Mario Rosales, and you can reach me at MarioRosales.com. Let me help you out wherever I can. Thanks. Michael A. Jauer is a writer, speaker, and researcher on the intersection of mind and body, emotion, and spirituality. He's previously co-authored The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion and Your Emotional Type. Today, he joins us to discuss his latest book, Sensitive Soul, The Unseen Role of Emotion in Extraordinary States. If you'd like to pick up a copy of this, we appreciate you using the affiliate link right here in the podcast description. We actually get a small gratuity at no additional cost to you for that. Michael's also been published in several journals, and he regularly blogs Feeling Too Much for Psychology Today. You can find him online at michaeljower.com, and we welcome you now. Hi, Michael. Cheryl, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us today. It is a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed your book. I read a lot of books for this show, and this one had a lot of different relevant topics. It weaves some things together that I wasn't quite expecting, so... For anyone that's interested in where science and spirituality meet in this physical experience, this is a great read on the power of emotions. I want to start out with a personal question for you. How did you come to dedicate so much of your life and energy and research into the role of emotion? Was it a personal experience or what intrigued you into that? Well, first, I never really expected to... uh to uh, go down this path uh, quite as extensively as I have. Uh, it's been very rewarding. I've learned a lot as I've tried to, you know, convey a lot of what I've learned over the years to my readers. It's been a wonderful exploration, but it was completely unanticipated. Uh, I think uh, I'm sort of inclined to try to figure myself out as well as other people. And as we'll discuss, uh, I'm sure, in due course, um, you know, there's a whole range of people, some of whom are more conversant with their emotions, what they're feeling than others. And um, I'm on the scale, the side that you're, you're having to try to figure out what you're feeling, that it's not quite clear. So it's always mystified me to an extent. I've gotten better at it, Cheryl, over the years, significantly better. 
but I think that's sort of a personality characteristic that's pushed me in this direction. The other prompt was um, many years ago when I was working with the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I wasn't on staff, but I was supporting an effort uh, of theirs through a trade association representing um, office building owners and managers and looking into, of all things, indoor air quality and uh, people's complaints about sick buildings and so-called sick building syndrome. And uh, this is what I was doing professionally at that time. And as I talked to people who'd been affected by or said they'd been affected by uh, sick building syndrome, it occurred to me that the kinds of things that they were sharing uh, had very much to do perhaps with some inherent sensitivities um, on their part, which um, were kind of a revelation to me, but seemed to start to form a pattern. And that really lent itself to a further investigation of people's makeup as individuals and how different things affect different people differently. Um, emotion is kind of a, um, a thread that seems to tie much or all of that together. That's really interesting. That is like the last explanation I would have expected to hear as to how you got into all of this. But I think it's awesome that you did because I am a sensitive soul, as you name the book. I am a very sensitive person. And I think, as you mentioned in the book, you actually at one point say you think we're all born that way and we kind of shut it down really to fit into the world and the way the world expects us to be and because we don't know what to do with it walking around open like that. That really intrigued me about your book. And I think in that part you were talking about autism, but this book, what was your main intention for this book? Uh, the intent is really captured, I believe, in the title, Sensitive Soul. You know, it's kind of a, a trite phrase in a way, but uh, I really feel like it applies 100% to the study that I've done over a couple of decades now. The sensitive part is really the um, the sentient part of ourselves that we're we're constantly, uh, as people, we're taking in stimuli from the environment and we're processing that stimuli. Uh, much of it emotional uh, stuff that's churning around inside of us, um, messages that we're trying to apprehend from other people, uh, trying to piece all that together. Of course, the five senses that we know and other senses, uh, such as uh, it's called proprioception, which is not appreciated so much, but it's it's the vestibular sense. It's really trying to uh, put together the bodies, uh, figuring out where it is in space. Uh, you know, are you are you situated comfortably? Um, are are you sort of tipping over? Um, are you flailing? That that kind of thing. Um, so there are other senses besides the, the the five senses, and all of that together constitutes. Uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, our sensitivity overall. The soul uh, part, of course, is um, our spiritual nature, which I contend is tied to um, the sentient part of us and the emotional underpinning of it all. So the term sensitive soul really coalesced for me as a nice shorthand way to uh, to pull together um, the enterprise that I've been about and um, what I think people, you know, really boils down to what we are as individuals, are our sensitive souls. I like that explanation. The book takes some interesting directions. And one of the things that pretty early on comes up is the topic of boundaries, thick boundaries, thin boundaries, that whole where does your space stop and mine start, coming into my space, uh, tying all that into the purpose of the book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I have been uh, 
privileged, I think is one good word, very fortunate to have bumped into and started up conversations and been the beneficiary of of contacts with a lot of different people in a lot of different fields over the past, oh my gosh, 25 years at this point from the time that I really sort of dedicated myself to this kind of exploration. And one of the foremost people, uh, Cheryl, that I have ever met is a fascinating guy uh, by the name of Ernest Hartman. And uh, he's unfortunately not with us uh, any longer, at least here on on Earth. But um, Ernest was uh, uh, a scholar and a gentleman. I think everybody who who knew him would describe him that way. Um, he was a psychiatrist at Tufts University, um, just outside of Boston. And I'm trying to remember how I was directed his way, but I uh, connected with him because of his theory of thick and thin boundaries. And it's, to me, a very persuasive personality construct. Things like, you know, introversion and extroversion and conscientiousness and neuroticism, open-mindedness. These are all facets of personality that uh, psychological science has has kind of embraced. Boundaries, I think, ought to be up there uh, as far as one of the most significant facets of personality. And that's what Ernest was delving into. And in in some, you know, his contention is that everybody is is along a scale, a spectrum from extremely thick to extremely thin. Most people being in the middle somewhere, like a, a bell shaped curve. Extremely thick boundary people are, as as it suggests, um, uh, sort of thick skinned. They can be seen as standoffish, not terribly conversant with their own feelings, which is the part of it that most interests me. But generally, the the opposite of a highly thin boundary person who, you know, is ex- extraordinarily sensitive and vulnerable, and for whom feelings are everything. So the thing that got Ernest Hartman going with with this uh, with this construct was he was studying people that uh, suffered from nightmares, and he realized in talking to them and also talking to people who didn't suffer from nightmares, in fact, barely even reported their dreams weren't weren't really able to recall much in, in as far as their dream life, he realized that there's a whole range of people, some of whom seem to be kind of jumpy and uh, volatile and highly reactive, uh, and and their, their emotions, their feelings subconsciously would you know bubble up, and they'd have nightmares in the middle of the night and, and not be able to get back to sleep. On the other hand, you know, there were other people who uh, barely dreamt or didn't remember their dreams were concerned by those those dreams and the feelings and images that typically are part and parcel of dreams uh, and that was how he developed his boundaries concept so it occurred to me that the thin boundary type of person corresponded to the types of people that um, I was hearing from uh, as I was talking to different people affected by sick building syndrome and these were people who volunteered that they'd been sensitive to many things, not just questionable indoor air quality and sort of poor indoor environment, um, but they were sensitive to all kinds of things, lighting levels, sounds, uh, smells. Some people said they were electrically sensitive, and uh, several people told me that they had had uh, parapsychological experiences throughout their life. So somehow that led me to Ernest Hartman and uh, that sort of clicked when he talked about the thin, thin boundary person. So being someone that naturally has thinner boundaries, if you will, I, 
I am a more sensitive person. And what I realized about that and what was especially illuminated moving through your book is all the places that shows up in my life, like you're alluding to. It's everything from feeling other people around me and what they're feeling and, and, and having all of that going on, being very sensitive in my dream state, being very sensitive to everything around me. And so to survive in that way, I've had to really close some of that up. Then my healing journey, I had closed it all up so much, I'd completely lost connection with my body in many ways. And so I guess I'm coming at this from a very realistic perspective. How do I use the information in your book to help me navigate the kinds of things that you talk about that particularly people with autism and those kinds of labels on them, it's been identified that they are your thin boundary people that you talk about. How can we use the work that you're coming through with up within your book to benefit us in our lives? Yeah, that's one of the most interesting uh, discoveries that I made in my research, uh, Cheryl, is that you know, that when you think typically of, of someone with autism or someone who's who's clearly on the autism spectrum, uh, you think of uh, somebody who's not uh, very socially um, comfortable, um, doesn't really understand social cues, uh, seems to be distant, not able to interact with people very well, uh, things of that nature. So it would sound like they're more on the thick side of the boundary spectrum as far as um, being impeded in those interactions and, and not having very fluid interactions with people or even knowing necessarily um, what they're feeling or, or giving um, indications of that. But uh, from my investigation, it seems like there's a good argument to be made that um, people who uh, are autistic or somewhere on the spectrum uh, don't come into life quite that way that they are highly sensitive from an early age, and it's the bombardment of sensory stimuli because their brains are, are, are sort of wired uh, so much more extensively than other people's that they have a tough time as infants shutting out uh, stimuli and, and trying to make sense of it, including emotional stimuli, not just all the, you know, from our, our regular senses, but emotional stimuli. And, and uh, in order to cope with that, uh, at an early age, they adopt strategies to kind of um, tamp down on that um, flow or overflow of stimulation. And so they end up on the spectrum because they're trying to, it's sort of self-preservation. You know, they're, they're trying to, to get through life. And uh, unfortunately, they, you know, they do this, they adopt these strategies um, early in childhood when they suffer uh, because they're, they're shutting down sort of their, their social capabilities. And so, by adopting these strategies, they really sort of uh, handicap themselves uh, for for later life. But I think you know there there are lessons here for everybody, uh, in the sense that, uh, as Hartman uh, indicated, we're, we're all sort of on a spectrum. We're all on a continuum uh, from extremely sensitive to uh, not overtly sensitive at all. Uh, and uh, the ideal, I suppose, is uh, to realize that none of this is necessarily pathological. It's just the way we develop. Uh, and so not to uh, necessarily you know, pity ourselves or um, look down our nose at other people, but realize everybody's on a tra different trajectory. That's number one. But number two, I guess the, you know, the ideal is also to draw from the best of the thin boundary side of the spectrum and the best of the thick boundary side of the spectrum and try to maybe moderate some tendencies that might not uh, be ideal for the person and, and 
maybe that's what you know you're looking to do in your own life, and perhaps that's that's part of the reason that you find sensitive soul the book appealing, because it's all about this range of tendencies that people have. And as I've done book talks over the years, I think the most frequent question, Cheryl, that people ask of me when they take the short boundary quiz, they say, "Well, uh, I'm I'm." predominantly thin, but I'd like to be a little thicker, or I'm predominantly <laughs> thick and I'd like to be a little thinner. Uh, and people also indicate that, you know, their spouse is the other type. You know, if they're highly thin, the other, the spouse tends to be highly thick. If there's a little bit thin, the spouse is a little bit thick, that kind of thing. So people tend, I think, even unconsciously um, reach out for, for other people in, you know, those relationships that kind of counterbalance their own, their own tendencies. Right. I would agree with that. Great response. Thank you. And I would just add that for me, the key to all of this is self-awareness. As I become aware that I am feeling certain things, picking up certain things from a situation, I can then do whatever self-care I need to do to, to moderate that, to, to take better care of myself so that I can be comfortable in these different situations. And that is a lot of work, honestly, to, to stay that self-aware all the time. Most of the time, I'm not that proactively self-aware. I'm, I'm working on it, but like I'll be in a situation and realize I'm completely overwhelmed and I'm feeling drained and I'm, I've got all these cues going off to let me know I've let myself become absorbed in the situation too much and I need to thicken up my boundary or do what I step away or do what I need to do to take care of myself. And I would also add that right now in this time when the energies are changing on our planet, I'm connecting with more and more people that are realizing their sensitivities. So I think your book is very timely as a tool for us to navigate that. Yeah, your point is right on the mark that it's it's easier said than done. (laughs) I mean, sometimes life comes at us so quickly that the last thing we are is self-aware because we're rushing to do, you know, 20 different things. And then at a certain point, um, the body mind, which is the term that I, I like to use, I didn't coin it, but I use it a lot because we're kind of unified in that way. It's not, the brain is not separate from, from the rest of the body. Right. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, brains just kind of walking around um, um, <laughs> as robots or something. We're, we're embodied individuals. And so there's, there's a there's a lot that's going on in us, but we're not always aware of it because we're we're constantly doing, um, at least many of us, and uh, uh, it it really helps to to be able to read and get you know perspectives like this so that uh, people can recalibrate and um, you know get get to a place that they're happy to be. Yes. Definitely. Well, and speaking of the body, one of the things that I had flagged that I wanted to discuss with you is where you talk about the gut's own nervous system, as you call it. And so there is our other place of picking up and being thin boundaried and absorbing everything. I feel it in my gut before I feel it anywhere else. So can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yes. The mind of the gut, the enteric nervous system, a whole area that I guess people are beginning to read about, uh, with the term um, gut uh, microbiota, I, th- I guess. I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but the, the microbes in the gut. And there's as much going on down there as there is in our upstairs brain. It is really its own self-contained nervous system. And yes, it's involved in digestion, um, but it's also involved in our immune system and it influences our behavior. There are so many messages going from the enteric nervous system up to the brain. 
there are um, information molecules uh, that are going back and forth, uh, and there's a, a lot more information actually that that's northbound, you might say, including serotonin, which is um, uh, you know a, a very important uh, element in depression, for example. Um, I believe 95% of the serotonin that's manufactured in the body um, is manufactured in the gut and then circulated elsewhere. So the popular conception is that the brain is, you know, the director of all the body's functioning. And what we're learning from the enteric nervous system is quite possibly it's it's the other way around much of the time. Um, so when we get gut feelings, when we have um, intuitions, um, when there's just something that tells us things aren't quite right or it gives us some uh, other slant that um, isn't purely mental, uh, it's it's likely that uh, the enteric nervous system is playing some sort of role. Um, so again, we're much, much more complex creatures than we, we typically think, and that's been some of the most rewarding uh, exploration that I've done is, is learning uh, about the enteric nervous system, which I had no idea uh, 15 or 20 years ago that it even existed. It is interesting. And, you know, as a child growing up very sensitive, my gut was always telling me things about my surroundings. And I would try and alert my parents or whomever. And, and you know, people would ask me, well, where, what do you, why would you say that about that person? And I didn't have any concrete. All I had was my gut feeling. I didn't have anything evidence to present. So I was dismissed. So that's another way that I learned to shut down those sensitivities because they weren't validated by any hard evidence that I could show someone. And I've come full circle to realize that I had that wisdom all along. And I need to open that back up and, to, and trust it. Yes, yes. And you're fortunate that, you know, you've come to that realization kind of as a natural progression. Um, a lot of people live their life in their heads pretty much, and and they take conventional wisdom for, um, you know, kind of uh, fixed uh, truths about everything, and they don't really necessarily question what um, what the prevailing wisdom is. And fortunately, the prevailing wisdom in many respects is, is changing. I mean, we have a much more, as a society, much more holistic perspective now on what it means to be an embodied human being, um, although people, science, and uh, mainstream science in particular, still thinks that the, the brain is, is, is kind of everything. Uh, and fortunately, we're, we're, we're moving away from that, and I think as we, as we are, um, the uh, perceptions of people um, who are on the thin boundary side of the spectrum or are more highly sensitive, you know, as you mentioned, um, they're gaining uh, uh, appreciation. In fact, there was a book, I think, just a few years ago, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was written by a woman who's a self-described introvert. And the book uh, is kind of a surprise bestseller because uh, it was all about, it was called Quiet. That was the name of the book. It was it was about being a quiet introspective person and how uh, those sorts of people are, are kind of their capacities are denigrated and and they're they're passed over for promotions and they're uh, they're overlooked in meetings and things like that um, and that book shot to the top of the bestseller list so there's there's clearly an appetite for a changed and, and widened view of, of um, human nature 
that's what makes it so exciting about being alive right now, I think, is that we are becoming more aware and expanding our understanding and realizing that just because we can't explain it doesn't invalidate it, that maybe we haven't explained it all yet. And I think that's the beauty of being alive in this age. I want to touch on another topic that you talked about in your book that was really interesting. You dive into synesthesia. You want to talk about that a little bit and its role in your research around the Sensitive Soul book? Yeah, we, we mentioned autism, and uh, synesthesia is another condition that uh, people may very well come into uh, life with. It may develop in the womb, as I think there's a, a great deal of evidence that, that autism does. Uh, autism may express itself later on, but the seeds of it are there um, probably before birth. Um, and, and synesthesia the same. Now, synesthesia is the crossing of senses, sort of cross-wired perceptions so that uh, uh, synesthetes uh, very often, uh, if they're particular words, sounds, letters, uh, words that they come across in print, doesn't matter if it's in print or if they hear it, those words or sounds will take on a, a particular color. I know one synesthete who, uh, I think it's called chronological uh, synesthesia, so that if she reads a date or hears a date on the calendar, there's a particular mix of color that comes in her mind, and it's just it's involuntary. Other forms of synesthesia are even more interesting. Uh, people are have been known to to taste smells, to taste shapes. Any any sort of conjunction of any of the two senses uh, is a form of synesthesia, and I think in the range of four to six percent of the population is known to have it. So it's, it's not uh, widespread, but it's a very rich way of perceiving the world. Uh, it can also uh, lead to problems because uh, folks who are synesthetes are almost by definition highly sensitive because any sensory experience they have is, is augmented. You know, so the, uh, going to the supermarket, for example, is, is, um, is uh, difficult for, for a lot of synesthetes. And there is a cross between um, synesthesia and autism. So there are some autistic people that are also synesthetes. It is a genetic condition. It's known to run in families. Autism, not so much. But even there, we're learning about uh, some um, genetic traits of autism. So some of these conditions seem to relate to one another, and that, that intrigues me, and that's sort of the kind of connections that I've been looking to draw in the book for people. Yes, and that makes it so interesting. And I thought I read that there was also a connection between IQ and synesthesia. Was that correct? I'm trying to remember, Cheryl, if I came across that, it, there very well could be because every synesthete that I've talked to, you know, seems to be highly intelligent right? Uh, and, and very self-aware. It's just I can't put my finger on a particular study uh, or statistic uh, at the moment, but it, it sort of, it, it does jive with, with my personal experience. There's just so much to learn, and I, I can see why you've had a lot of fun doing the research and learning and exploring to put these books together and share with us what you come across. Another topic that you touched on about birthmarks and the remembered lives of others, that was a really interesting chapter about, well, I don't want to share it. You share it. You could do a better job. You're the author. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, these are all uh, probably subjects that each each of which could be its own book. Right. But... Um, the, you know, the theme of emotion and sensitivity seems to be uh, a good way to make connections between these. And with uh, near-death and out-of-body experiences, these seem to occur 
uh, to people who uh, are on the thin boundary side of the spectrum. In fact, the, the thinner boundary the person, the more likely they are to have multiple um, out-of-body or near-death experiences. So uh, there is clearly a connection with, with boundary type. And the recollections that children have, this is not relating to out-of-body or near-death experiences, but um, young children will on occasion remember someone else's life very, very vividly uh, as if they were that person, which raises the question of reincarnation, which is an intriguing question. Sometimes people will sort of jump to that conclusion and say, well, if this particular child is remembering someone else's life in such detail, they must have lived that life themselves and it's evidence of reincarnation of the soul. I'm not certain of that at all. I think there's there's at least one other uh, possible explanation for it, which to me relates to the emotional trauma that seems to have been invoked in these remembered lives. So that seven, I think there's a study uh, done at the University of Virginia uh, amalgamating all thousands, I think tens of, of thousands of of studies uh, of, of children, maybe it's not quite that many, but it's 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 in the thousands that have been studied by folks, predominantly University of Virginia, and 70% of those cases involve uh, some sort of uh, violence, uh, a violent end to that person's life. And you can imagine emotionally, um, if if someone's in a life or death situation, what that that might mean. And, and sort of the, the physiological um, stress that goes on. Uh, so I look at it from the standpoint of physiology and neurobiology and what could be happening in the body-mind that might generate, in effect, a snapshot of, uh, of a person's demise or, or a person's life leading up to that demise. Again, very intriguing questions, and when you read uh, some of the accounts of the children, for example, who remember being a... Uh, an Air Force pilot in World War II, it's almost like uh, they're remembering uh, PTSD. It's, it's, it's the, the way that the, the person was evidently killed um, really does tie to PTSD and, and the, the trauma that that person must have gone through if those accounts are to be believed. So there's, there's a lot to unpack, uh, Cheryl, in short, and uh, <laughs> I try to do uh, a lot of unpacking in a fairly short space in the book. You do. It, it's not a very thick book. It's not, you know, a daunting thing to pick up to read. But yet I found myself reading a little bit and then putting it down and really letting it absorb because there is a lot in here. I don't think you talked about it in the book, but as I was listening to you just now, I was reminded of an interview I did with a gentleman out of California on the field of epigenetics. And I don't know if you've looked much at epigenetics, but it's where that trauma has been passed down through the DNA. So a person might not understand why they're afraid of heights and then come to find out they had an ancestor who fell from a great height and was killed. And so at the same, around the same age, they become afraid of heights or what it was a really interesting conversation about, again, the role of emotion in the body and things that we can actually inherit genetically. Yes, I do address that in the book. Um, I would say there's a, a full chapter devoted to epigenetics, but uh, I definitely uh, am aware of the term and um, have used it in a couple of instances in, in just the way that you mentioned. There was a study done at Emory University maybe six or seven years ago, which is kind of a crucial study that, that's relevant to, to what you're mentioning, and that is they they trained rats uh, to be afraid of a particular, it was a combination of, of a kind of a smell 
and then in a, in a sort of like a B.F. Skinner way, they, they, they trained the rats behaviorally to be afraid of that particular smell. And the rats gave birth to, to, to pups, and those pups gave birth to other pups. And what the researchers found is that the fear of that particular smell was passed down not just to the next generation, but to the generation after that. Um, and they did, they, uh, made sure because of certain safeguards and checks that it was hereditary and this was an uh, an effect of genetics and not something that the rat pups were learning from their mothers for example um it was very carefully done and it it pretty much rocked the the scientific world at least the the scientists that concerned you know with trauma and stress and uh went went a good distance to indicate that these these things can happen in a rather short span of time. It, it's it's not like a Darwinian evolution. We don't have to wait thousands or millions of years for changes to happen. It, it's it's really startling, and I'm convinced that there's a lot applicable there to people's anomalous experiences of ghosts, apparitions, things of that nature. I apologize for not remembering that chapter when I brought it up. As soon as you started talking about that study, I remembered exactly reading that and and even sharing it with Mario and going, you got to hear about this. This is really interesting. We've been so intrigued by epigenetics. We're actually going to be doing some training to incorporate that into the work that we do with clients because it really is powerful stuff. I, I love the case studies of what they're helping people to overcome these fears and these anxieties and apprehensions and even terrors that they have no understanding of why they have them. So that's really brought some neat healing into that area. Yeah, there's there's accounts also of um, children, certainly grandchildren, of um, Holocaust survivors who uh, sort of carry uh, this trauma, it's sort of generational trauma uh, in their own lives and have no uh, sense palpably of how it's part of them, but it, it clearly is. And in that sense, it's like autism, it's like synesthesia, um, as something that just, uh, people, uh, it infiltrates people's lives, um, through, um, no fault of their own, but they have to understand what it's about. Um, that's really, uh, that's a recurring theme of the book, Cheryl, as far as, uh, the upshot for understanding the anomalies, whether it's poltergeists or uh, apparitions or, or just uh, feeling that something is amiss in a particular space, so-called haunted locations, uh, I, I think there may be reverberations in a similar way of highly emotional events that took place you know, X number of years ago. This is fascinating. I'm just realizing and listening to you and remembering the many pages at the back of your book, this endless list of, of studies that you cite and research, and you're like a walking encyclopedia for the research that's been done in this area. It's really interesting to talk to you because you can draw from so much background knowledge that you have. You've spent years diving into this. Where do you see it going for you next? What, what's the next thing that's pulling you forward in this field? It's a great question, and I do not know, and uh, that's perfectly fine with me because I I haven't known at any particular juncture what I was going to do next with with uh, this kind of information. Um, I I blog for Psychology Today, and there are always ideas that occur to me, Cheryl, but uh, I I rarely have a fixed idea of what I want to write next. It's just that. Uh, I, I do enjoy absorbing information from a whole lot of different sources and seeing, you know, what developments relate to subjects that I've studied. Um, 
what implications might be for for those uh, those topics. New ideas bubble up just based on things that I happen to read um, on the web one particular day or in a magazine or something like that. So I wish I knew, uh, but it's kind of exciting that I don't because um, I, I just kind of let it come to me. And uh, if it uh, germinates and uh, you know sort of uh, passes the smell test, then I'll write about it. We appreciate you staying in the question because if it weren't for inquisitive, open-minded people who really want to learn more and understand more, we wouldn't have these great books that we can curl up with and begin to really understand ourselves. Because what I took away from reading this book is that there are so many layers of reasons why I'm wired the way that I am. It's nature, it's nurture, it's in my DNA, it's, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with me, and I can learn through awareness to manage this so that I can function well and still be open. It is a gift. I used to think it was a curse because it didn't help me fit in well in society. But I, I do believe now that it's a gift as I learn how to, when to be more open and when to be more closed and how to take care of myself with this variety of skills slash sensitivities that I have. Is that what you find from other people that you talk to that once they learn how to manage it, they're more comfortable with it or do more still struggle? Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that because um, that is kind of refrain that I hear from people that have read my books. Um, Going back to a book called The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion back in 2009. um, And then the next book was called um, Your Emotional Type, which came out a couple of years later, which focuses on emotion and health. People consistently have said, I didn't really understand myself terribly well. I thought it was, you know, I thought high sensitivity was a deficit and kind of a curse as opposed to a blessing. And that's been very gratifying to me to to uh, be able to help people understand that there is a basis of a, a, a genuine basis for um, how they feel and and um, how they're packaged um, and and not to put themselves down not to feel that um, that they're uh, freakish in any way but in fact they have distinct advantages over other people as well as you know relative disadvantages but we're all on this continuum somewhere uh, and um, it's it's something to be appreciated um, and and worked with as opposed to um, believing other people who say oh you know you're, you're too sensitive and you shouldn't you shouldn't be that way um, it's the way you are so you might as well um, learn and apply it to the best of your your ability and your potential. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking with Michael Jower today. You can find him online at michaeljower.com. Michael, do you have a parting thought that you would like to leave us with about all that we've discussed? The only parting thought might be, uh, I'll mention a particular uh, web address. If folks want to see quickly where they are on the boundary spectrum, I suspect most of your uh, listeners are on the thin side. But they may know some folks on the thick side. <laughs> As I mentioned, the spouses are often on the thick side. Uh, so uh, there's a quiz uh, that um, Ernest Hartman uh, put together uh, once upon a time, and it's a distillation of his boundary questionnaire, which was 145 questions, but this is only an 18-question quiz, and it takes about 10 minutes to do, and it's at youremotionaltype.com, and it's scored automatically so folks can see almost at a glance, um, just 
how thin boundary they might be. That's very helpful. Thank you for sharing that with us. And we'll put that in the description of the podcast as well. So if you're driving, listening to this or whatever, just check the description when you get someplace safe and we've got it written down there for you. Michael, thank you so much. And I look forward to you discovering what's next for you and whatever your next book might hold. I kind of have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be around emotions because all of the others have. No doubt. <laughs> That's a, I'm not going to bet against you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for listening to the show. Please let us know what you thought of today's topic and guest. We always love your feedback at journeyofpossibilities.com. And we will see you next time on Exploring Possibilities.